listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Hi, we're the Horstmans, and today's scripture reading is from James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This This is is the word word of the Lord. So Pastor Jeff and I were about a year into our co-leading together when we came to the conclusion, hey, we should bring in uh, some sort of coach, a guide from outside of the church family who has worked with pastors, you know, lead pastors who are sharing responsibilities and can kind of help us figure out, like, how do we make this work and how do we bring our best gifts to the table and and how do we complement one another? Uh, So we signed a contract with a group called Pastor Serve and uh, got connected with a coach out of Colorado, a guy named Wade. We've been meeting with him monthly for the last four years, and he's been helping us sort of think through how we do what we're doing, how we lead, how we work together, all of those things. He's really kind of moved from being a coach to more of a mentor or even a a spiritual director for us. Now, we went with this particular coaching group because of their philosophy about the, what they call the front stage and the backstage. Uh, the front stage is how good your people think you are as a leader, and the backstage is how good you actually are. And they showed us this graph, so you can imagine it, right? How good you are is on the y-axis, and time is on the x-axis, and they're like, Here, here's how good your people think you are, and it's kind of like trailing up here along the top, and here's how good you really are. And about the age 55, the lines meet. Yes. <laughs> Jeff's 54. <laughs> which is probably why he only has to meet with Wade once a month and I meet with him twice a month. (laughs) Their goal as a a coaching organization is is to try to accelerate the backstage growth of the leader, the character of the leader, so that how good the leader is matches how good the people think he or she is, you know, maybe a few years younger than 55. And so working with Wade has been challenging. Because he's not just helping us figure out, like, how do you preach better? How do you lead meetings better? Things like that. He's, he's asking questions and getting underneath our actions, saying, now, why did you do that? Uh, what motivations may you, why did you respond in that way? What, what pain from the past were you responding to when you lashed out like this? Let's, let's talk about your sinful selfishness and see how that affects your leadership. <laughs> it's been challenging. Um, but of course, it's, it's vital for any leader or uh, teacher to submit themselves to this kind of scrutiny, to, uh, uh, to be held to account, you know, not just for what you're teaching, but for whether or not what you're teaching actually has an impact on your life. 
you're preaching better than you actually are living. This is what James is reminding us of in this passage that you just heard read. This is what James is challenging us with. If you want to lead, if you want to teach, or actually the context is, or the application is wider than that, if you have an opinion you think needs to be shared, and other people should listen, then take a break, pause for a moment, don't share, don't teach, don't lead until you've been tested. Does your life match up with your wisdom? That's the proposition that James puts before us in this passage. If you think you have wisdom worth sharing, well, then sit down for a moment and let us examine your life. We want to see if what you believe lines up with how you really behave. So if you're ready for a challenge, uh, turn with me to, don't worry, Steve, this is normally when people start walking out. Turn to James chapter 3. I'm sorry, that was just too good to pass up. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. This short paragraph, James confronts our, our understanding of wisdom as being the sum total of what you know. James says it's not about what you know, it's about how you take what you know and apply it to your life, how you practice your faith in your life. He shows us that the truly wise can be recognized by their lives. Uh, that, in fact, that's my key idea for this morning. You, you know the wise by their lives. Right? You know the wise by their lives. So if you're looking for wisdom, or you're looking to share the wisdom you think you have, well, let's, let's test that wisdom. Let's put it to the test. Let's look at your life. So let's jump in, verse 13, picking up right away there in verse 13, James starts off the section with a rhetorical question or a test. He says, well, who is wise and understanding among you? And remember where he's been in the context of the, the verses that have come before. He's talking about the right use of our words, especially for teachers, for leaders in the church. Now he's continuing the use of our words discussion and expanding it beyond teachers and leaders to include anyone who thinks they have an opinion worth sharing or anyone who is hearing opinions or wisdom from others. So that question's there right at the beginning. Who is wise and understanding among you? Stand up, step forward if you feel you have wisdom. If you feel you have understanding, if you, if you have wisdom, if you've plumbed the depths of the human experience and contemplated the heights of the heavens and you've come back with this knowledge of how the world works, then please, James says, step forward. We'd, le we'd like to hear from you. If you have understanding, you know, if you uniquely, you can see through all the rhetoric, you can see past all the bluster and all the pseudoscience and the fake news, and you really know what's going on in the world. You know what's happening. You've got opinions people need to listen to. You've got thoughts that you need to share. If you know how the, the, the world or the business or the church or the home or the, the family or the whatever, the other person's life, if you know how it ought to be run, James says, hey, step forward. 
And I don't think he's being facetious. I think we actually want to know if there's wisdom out there. We want to listen to it. So he says, step forward, but uh, we want to learn from you. But before we do, we want to see if your wisdom lines up with your works. Does your own life line up with your learning? Or are your beliefs better than your behavior? Because he says it's plainly obvious you will know the wise by their lives. So let's look at your life. Let's see if there's wisdom there. All right, so he lays down this challenge, second sentence in verse 13. You know, by a person's good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In other words, if you think you're truly wise, then let's take a look. Does your good conduct, does the working out of your faith point towards a humble wisdom or to something entirely different? What is your conduct pointing towards? See, James doesn't assess the wisdom of these individuals, these leaders, these teachers. He doesn't assess their claims to wisdom by, subject, uh, by subjecting them to a doctrinal exam or asking them to explain esoteric theological theories. He doesn't evaluate their wisdom based on how much potential they have to donate to the building campaign or by how influential they are in the world outside the church. He assesses their wisdom by their lives. Because true wisdom isn't about how much you know, it's about how you've taken what you know and applied it to your life. So here he tells us, if you want to know who is really worth listening to, then look for someone with wisdom Wisdom that has led to, the ESV chooses the word, meekness at the end of verse 13. Look for the person whose wisdom has led to meekness. Now, that word is a multifaceted word in Greek, and so English translators have tended to use and, and choose one of three different words to try to capture what's going on here, either humility or meekness or gentleness, and maybe the best translation would be humility slash meekness slash gentleness, like cram all three words together. It's because it's gonna, it takes all three of these words to get it. There, there's the idea in this word of, of humility, which is knowing who you are before God, knowing who you are in the presence of God. And that's part of the word, but there's also this meekness part, which is knowing who you are and your relative strengths and weaknesses when compared to other individuals, who you are in the presence of others. So who you are before God, who you are before others. And then there's also the like, gentleness side of this word, which is in light of who you are before God and how you stack up and measure up against others, what do your actions look like? Are they soft? Are they gentle? Because you know who you are and how to interact with other people. All of that is wrapped up into this one word saying, this is what wisdom will lead to, a person who is humble or meek or gentle. So James is arguing that, that real wisdom, real understanding, you know, truly spiritual, heavenly wisdom and understanding will be easy to spot. It'll, it'll be in the gentle people, in the humble people, or the meek people. 
He says, you'll know the wise, you'll know who's worth listening to by their lives. When you see this in their lives. So if you see someone who's humble and gentle and meek, then, then listen to that person. They may have wisdom worth listening to. On the other hand, verse 14, here's who not to listen to. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast. Don't continue boasting and be false to the truth. In other words, if your life is categorized by these descriptors, bitter jealousy or selfish ambition, and you're telling people like you're one of the wise ones, you're, you are qualified to be a leader, you're the person other people should be looking up to, but you're bitterly jealous and selfishly ambitious, stop saying you have wisdom. You're lying. You're giving false testimony to the truth. You're being false. And, and these, are, these are tough words, but they strike maybe a little closer to home than we would initially assume. Very few of us would say, yeah, I'm selfishly ambitious, of course. Or jealously bitter. But, but bitter jealousy has this sense of a, kind of a contentious, self-oriented, envious desire to possess either things, a better this than the person down the street, a better that than the person in the pew in front of you, possess things or possess reputations. I, I want to be known. I need to be known. I don't feel like I'm worth anything unless other people look to me as the go-to person on this topic or this topic or basically all of life. Bitter jealousy is the sense of saying, I, I need to possess something or some reputation or some opinion in order to feel like I'm, I'm, I'm worth some space in this world. So if you're driven to, to build a platform, to have a say, to be at the table, to be respected for your opinion, to be seen as an expert, and if you're not, then you're just not okay, then yeah, bitter jealousy applies. Selfish ambition isn't any better. It isn't any better. It's, it's more than just a feeling. It's the actual building of factions within a larger group or a body in order to drive wedges between these groups and then exploit the division for your own end. Uh, you know, it's the whisker, whisper campaign at, at work where you're trying to sabotage a project that, uh, that you don't want to see happen or you're trying to get through something that your career is riding on. It's the fracturing of friend groups in order to get this part on your side against that person who wronged you in some way. So you start saying things and dropping hints and making insinuations against one or another person. You're building coalitions, creating in-groups and out-groups in order to not do the right thing, but stay in that position of of power, that position of privilege, whatever it is that you're in that you need to hold on to. It's, this person who's bitterly jealous and selfishly ambitious is less concerned about being right and more about being in, being included or being in charge. Or they're willing to say anything is right if it means they can hold on to the position or the authority or the, the inclusion that they have. 
So in effect, James is saying, if, if you say you're wise, but you're always wanting to be seen as the person that people should go to, or you're more concerned with being in charge than you are in being right and doing right, then you're living a lie. You're claiming to be wise, but you're living in such a way that your life denies the words that you're saying. I mean, because you, you, you know the wise by their lives, and people can look at your life and say, that's not wisdom. It's something, but it's not wisdom. And what it is, that kind of quote-unquote wisdom in verse 15, if, you're, if you've got one of these scripture journals, just put square, uh, scare quotes around that word, wisdom. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. This is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And it doesn't lead to humility or gentleness or meekness. James says in verse 16, it leads to disorder and every vile practice. I mean, in, in other words, where the, where the teachers and the leaders in a church or even the, the members of a church are, are given over to uh, self-oriented posturing and positioning, the self-focused grasping and clawing for what they want or what they need, or to that self-centered creation of factions and divisions, then what's the result? Well, disorder word most often used to describe an insurrection or a mob, and every kind of vile practice, every kind of manipulation and tactic and strategy in order to hold on to the thing you need or want in order to be happy. So James invites us, um, take a look at your church. Look around at, at your leaders and your teachers. Look at their lives. What are you seeing? Are you seeing heavenly wisdom that is resulting in gentleness and meekness and humility or more of an earthly, unspiritual, devilish wisdom that's leading to jealousy and bitterness and contention and envy? What do you see? Take a look. You'll know the wise by their lives. So what is, what is our life saying? What's your life saying? James shows us what to look for and also what to avoid, how to evaluate false wisdom. But in the next two verses, he gives us a guide to finding true wisdom, wisdom from above. What does this wisdom look like? Actually, more importantly, what does this wisdom do? Because he gives us one word to describe what it looks like and then seven more to describe what it does, how that central character works itself out in action. Look at verse 17. But the wisdom from above, the heavenly wisdom, is first pure. And almost every commentator agrees that word is sort of the source or the fountain out of which the other seven flow. This is that unstained, unsullied, no self-centeredness, no selfish motives, no ambitions, no self-seeking attitudes. An inner quality out of which the next seven come. 
first three kind of go together, peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. It's the exact, op- uh, exact opposite of the envious, the selfish, the ambitious person lif- listed above. Which means this person described here in verse 17 isn't always spoiling for a fight. Right? Their, their inclination is not to shoot first and act que- ask questions later. Their goal is discussion, de-escalation, open to mutual understanding, wanting to approach the other person and say, help me understand what you're thinking and where you're coming from. Help me understand how to see the world the way you see the world. Not the quick denunciation, but the mutual respect and understanding. Now, it's not that this person is weak. It's that they're strong enough to be wrong without destroying everyone else around them. They're strong enough to have a conversation with someone who disagrees without feeling the need to either get away from that person or just completely destroy them. So they're peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. The next two virtues also go together. Full of mercy and full of good fruits. Full of mercy. Mercy is that inclination to alleviate the suffering or the burden that you see on another, even if the other doesn't deserve it necessarily. And so, of course, then good fruit is the working out of that, those acts of mercy over time, the sort of piling up of fruit. Fruit is a very positive word in James' usage, describing the kind of righteous life that God requires. So being full of mercy, wanting to help and alleviate the burdens on others, leads to being full of fruit the actions that actually does that alleviating. So if you're looking for someone who has wisdom, don't go looking for the person talking the most. Look for the person serving the most. Don't go looking for the person who's advertising what they're doing. Go look for the person who's just quietly doing what they're doing. They actually might be harder to find because they're not advertising. So you keep your eyes open. And when you see a person like this, you know there might be some wisdom there to listen to. Take a look at their life. I mean, you know the wise by their lives. So if you see this kind of life, look for their wisdom. It'll be pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. Last two, impartial and sincere. This person is impartial, meaning they they can see both sides of an argument or a discussion. They can see multiple sides of a conflict. They, They don't automatically jump in and disagree with the person who holds an opposite view simply because the view is opposite or because they are part of a group with whom we're supposed to disagree on everything. They don't disagree with something until they fully understand what it is that they're disagreeing with and how someone else could have come to that conclusion in good faith. They're impartial. And they're sincere. This is a word that means not playing a part. They're not putting on a role. You don't have to worry. This person is the exact same with you when they're talking with you as they are somewhere else when they're talking about you. It doesn't change. The same person on the street as they are at home. So if you find a person like is described in verse 17, pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason and mercy and good fruits and impartial and sincere, this person... 
this person might tell you some things you don't necessarily want to hear. They might tell you the truth. They might speak openly. They might speak honestly. They might ask difficult questions. Not because they don't love you, but because they love you enough to want to see the wisdom that leads to peace played out in your life as well as their own. Do you know anyone who, who sounds like this? Do you know anyone, anyone else who, who, who you could describe as humble and meek and gentle? Someone whose, whose love for others works itself out in mercy towards even those who don't deserve any mercy. Someone whose speech and conduct is sincere and impartial. They're not putting on an act. They're not playing you along. They're telling you what you need to know and why you need to know it. They're the exact same person in public and in private. Do you know anyone who, who, who looks like this, whose courageous commitment to wisdom, to knowing and doing what is right, would lead them even to the point of sacrificing themselves on behalf of someone else, if that's what it took to do what's right? Anyone whose wisdom can only be described as having come from above. I think that's the point of piling on these adjectives here in verse 17. The point that James is trying to make is don't, we don't look at him or the apostles. We don't look at our current leaders. We don't look at one another to try to find this kind of wisdom modeled. We look to the person James looked to, his half-brother. We, we look to Jesus, the only one whose wisdom could truly be described as having come from Above, the one who we know is wise because we can see his life. You know the wise by their lives. So we see Jesus' life and we know, we know his wisdom. And when we see it, we've been reading, you know, throughout this letter that James has written, we're watching James take Old Testament wisdom for how to live and filtering it through Jesus' life. And so he gives us this description of who Jesus was, who Jesus is and who we can become if we follow him. Which means as he, he holds out this picture to us, we have, a, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to respond to the challenge that James is giving us. Both when advice and wisdom comes our way and when we're the ones who want to dispense it and dole it out. So when wisdom comes our way, when someone shares an opinion with us, we have the responsibility to, get, to kind of stop and evaluate the source of the wisdom. Does it come from someone who is peaceable or humble or meek, gentle? Or is it coming from someone who is trying to inflame our anger to get us mad at some other side or some perceived enemy or someone, if, if this person can get us mad enough, then it benefits him and it hurts whoever his enemy is? Where's this wisdom coming from? What kind of a life is being led by the person giving their opinion, their wisdom? So consider the source. We have to consider the source of the wisdom coming our way. Look at their lives. You'll know the wise by their lives. So what's their life look like? 
But of course, the, the greater burden on us is probably when we want to actually dole out wisdom, the knowledge that we've gained. We want to share with others. What, what do we, what's our responsibility before telling others how they should be living their lives or orienting their affairs or conducting their business? Well, a couple of questions come to mind. First, we gotta ask ourselves, if someone compared my advice to my life, would they see congruence or incongruence? Now, none of us are gonna be perfectly aligned, but how far apart are we and in what direction is it trending? Does our life match what we preach? what we opine to others. You know, we should examine then our own lives, right? Does my, look like, does my life look more like gentle humility or bitter jealousy? Would others describe me as selfishly ambitious or full of, of mercy and good fruit? When others look at how I live, do they see peaceableness, willingness to learn, or, or contentious partisanship? Just when we put ourselves out there as leaders or as teachers or as simply someone with an opinion to share, someone who wants to be heard, uh, we, we have to stop and pause, take a, break, take, a, take a breath, take a break before we tap, send, or click submit, or hit post. We get to ask ourselves, am I living up to my own words? Is this wisdom coming out of a, a gentle place of acquired and lived experience, or am I just making claims that I, I can't even live up to? Am I saying, Here, here's what I think, and y'all need to think that way too. Or, here's, here's what I think. Help me think this through. Help me to understand why we disagree. Help me to see things from your perspective. All of us need to be subjected to a, a test like this, accountability like this. It sounds harsh, but one of the best things for my own personal spiritual growth and leadership is when my wife says to me, you sounded really good up there today, but I know what you're really like at home. You can laugh at it because it's really uncomfortable when it happens. <laughs> But it's absolutely the best. It, we all need someone or some others to hold us accountable to living out what we preach, to behaving the way we, be, we believe. There's an old Jewish proverb, a, a rabbi writing around the same time as James. I don't know if he actually knew this proverb or not, but uh, the, the guy wrote that a person whose wisdom is better than their works is like a tree with many branches and few roots. who's become top-heavy with all of their knowledge and their entire life has become unstable. So before you share your opinion, before you put yourself out there as an expert, before you, before you go to bat for your idea, then, and I apologize in advance for what I'm about to say, this is so corny and cheesy, but my wife made me promise I would say it. You have to check yourself before you recommend yourself. <laughs> 
Please note, I apologize in advance. Uh, but you've got, to, you've got to look at yourself before you put yourself out there, before you say, hey, everyone, I have an opinion. Please listen. Now, I'm 38, and by my math, I have 17 more years before I am actually as good of a person as you all think I am. But the time and the energy and the work is, is worth it, because James promises in verse 18 that it's worth it. It says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Or to flip it around as another translation does, peacemakers who work in peace raise the fruit of the kind of life that God is asking for. Peacemakers who work in peace. And, and, and James's idea of peace is thoroughly Jewish. It's not just the absence of disharmony or discord. It's the presence of harmony, of, of music, of concordance. It's, it's, a, uh, it's the flourishing, the presence of flourishing and good, not just the absence of conflict. And he says this kind of peace is only raised in a certain kind of climate. Not a climate of bitterness or jealousy, not a climate of selfishness or ambition, not a climate of disorder and vile practice. The kind of peace that James is, is wanting for the churches can only grow in a, a climate of gentleness and humility and meekness and, and mercy and sincerity. So when, when you look at your life or your leaders' lives or your teachers' lives, can this kind of peace grow there? Is your life creating the kind of climate in which peace can flourish? Because as we follow Jesus and become more like the one who is pure and peaceable and gentle, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, the more we follow and become like him, the more ourselves and those around us will create a climate in which this peace can come and wisdom can be heard. Because you know the wise by their lives. So who is wise and understanding among you? Let's pray. Father, we continue to be challenged through this wisdom of James, through this Old Testament wisdom filtered through Jesus' life, showing us how to live out the faith you've given to us, showing us how to live out the wisdom that we claim we have, showing us how to live out and put into practice what you've given to us. As we desire to grow in wisdom and in fruit, Father, help us to continue to keep our eyes on Jesus who is so far ahead of us that, that we look to him instead of those behind us and see how, how little they've made progress. It's not about others. It's about us and you. 
So draw us ever closer and teach us to be more like you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.